right, well, good morning. How's everybody doing? All right, we got plenty of breakfast out there if you want to get seconds, thirds, fourths, uh, have at it. Remember, if you didn't pick one up, there is a week six reading out there on the table. This is for your uh, reading for next week's lesson. goes with your homework, so pick that up. Hopefully by now you've discovered that uh, these readings go into greater detail than I can go into, uh, and you'll take advantage of that. And the same thing's going to be true today as we jump into today's lesson that I'm going to come at it at, from the 36,000-foot view, and so we're going to have to skip over a few things. Um, we're not going to dig into the depth of this passage. The, these chapters are incredibly uh, full and rich, and there's so many things I would love to cover that I can't, and so hopefully what, what we do today is going to be effective and um, applicable. I told you day, day one when we started this whole thing that my goal is to help us see God. I want to discover more about God. Who is the God that we worship? Who is the God that we follow? What is he like? How do we see him in these passages? And so that's really what we're going to do this morning is try to, try to step back and take a look at God as he reveals himself in these chapters to Moses, to the people of Israel, to Pharaoh, to the Egyptians. And so that's exactly what we're going to do in the time we have now. So let me pray for us and we'll jump into these chapters. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity to study it together. And Lord, what a privilege it is to come and be with these guys each week and to unpack your word and to hear what you want us to hear about you. Uh, Lord, may we see you. Uh, may you reveal yourself through the written word, through these historic events, but may we also gain insight into how we can see you actively involved in our own lives in the story of our lives, how you're working behind the scenes in ways that we can't always see and we don't always understand. Lord, we, we want to acknowledge that you are good and that you're great and that you're gracious and merciful and kind and powerful and uh, you're holy. And Father, that's what I want us to see today as we unpack these passages. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. So in your notes, there's this chart. You know, I love charts. So there's a chart. And this is a kind of a summary of the nine plagues that we kind of passed over last week. Um, and, and what I want you to notice is that right smack dab on that left-hand side, there's these gaps. And these gaps are kind of interesting is that the, the plagues come in sequences of three. And the third plague is there's, there's no command. You notice how uh, every time God says, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And every time Pharaoh goes, no, I'm not going to let him go. And then something happens and he goes, okay, I'll let you go. But you, it has to be this way. And then he changes his mind again. There's three cases where God doesn't give him any command. He just acts. He just does something. He doesn't say, let my people go. He just brings a plague. And that's significant because it's like God's going to give him two opportunities and he's going to say no. And the third time, he's not going to say, let my people go. He's just going to bring a plague. And that's exactly what we see when we come to this ninth plague. Uh, and this ninth plague is, is, is going to be a, an important one, but it's like all the others. That it all has to do with what is God trying to do? And we've said over and over again, God's trying to reveal himself. He's trying to reveal himself to Moses, to Aaron, to the people of Israel, but also to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Victor Hamilton says this, the function of the plagues goes back to the word of Pharaoh. I do not know the Lord. This emphasis on knowing the Lord lifts the plagues beyond the function of just chastisement or judgment. It's not just about 
God's punishing people. Uh, God's doing evil things to people. We can sometimes see the actions of God as evil, and they're never evil because everything that God does is just right and good. The divine purpose is that Pharaoh and his people, the Egyptians, to say nothing of the Israelites, will indeed acquire knowledge based on observation and confrontation, not hearsay. Now, why is that significant? I think what Victor Hamilton is trying to get us to understand is that God wants the Egyptians to know him in a physical, tangible way. It, I love the fact that we're studying God's Word. I love God's Word. But if, if this is all I know about God and I don't know about God in my own personal life, there's something wrong with that picture. And so Moses could sit there and tell Pharaoh everything he knows about Yahweh, what he's learned about Yahweh in the time that he's called him. But until Pharaoh begins to see the power of Yahweh, he'll never truly know Yahweh. And I think the same thing's true in my life and in your life. Pastors can get up and they can tell you everything about the God of the Old Testament, even the God of the New Testament, but until that God shows up in my life and in your life, it's all just rhetoric. It's just, it's, it's something we've learned through hearsay, secondhand, thirdhand, fourthhand, but it's not been through actual relationship with Him, with God Almighty. So that, that's why these plagues are so significant. At the end of the day, it's all about knowing God. But there's an interesting um, phrase that happens all throughout these plagues where uh, it talks about Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Uh, more, more often than not, it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. He, he became hardened. He decided, I don't want to do this. I don't want to let the people go. But there's several occasions where it says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And this is one of those places in Scripture where we get uncomfortable with God, Okay. Um, we don't understand why would God do that? I, I, I started reading just recently a, a, a book by C.S. Lewis. It's actually a collection of essays that was published, I think, in 1970. They were all written in the 1940s, early 1940s. So if you've never re read anything by C.S. Lewis, this book is called God in the Dock, which is basically God on trial. Um, that's the English term for court. It's, it's God being tried. And what's happened, his whole, whole premise of, of these collection of essays is that there was a time when man believed that we stood in the court of God. He's the judge. We st stand before him, and he judges us. But somewhere, and I think it began with the Enlightenment, which we talked about last week, we put God on trial. And we're the judge who are holding him accountable to, why do you do this? Why did you do that? Why haven't you fixed this? Where are you? What have and we basically put God on trial. And, and it's interesting how we are really comfortable with saying, how could a loving God do you fill in the blank? We're, we're not so comfortable going, how could a holy God do fill in the blank? Here's what I mean. Something negative happens in your life or to somebody you know, and you go, how could a loving God allow that? We, we have one of our own here on the West Campus who comes to Band of Brothers, uh, who he and his wife just lost their fourth child who was born prematurely. And it's real easy to say, how could a loving God let that happen? And I don't have an answer for that, guys. I, I, I don't know what to say to that other than I know my God is sovereign. I know my God is fully aware. But what we tend not to do, we'll, we'll ask that question all the time. How could a loving God do X? But we won't say, how could a holy God do why? How could a holy God love me? 
How can a holy God not incinerate this planet for what it's done? How can a holy God tolerate what we see going on in our culture? Why wouldn't he just step in and go, okay, I'm done? He's done it before. Why not do it again? How could a holy God not obliterate us for our disobedience? See, we ask one and we feel okay with that, but we never tend to ask that second question. That's what this is going to be all about. See, we get uncomfortable when it says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. How could God harden a man's heart? How could God do that? It begins with the sixth plague. That's where we first hear that phrase, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Up until this point, it seems that Pharaoh's own heart was hardened. He just didn't want to do what Moses was asking him to do or commanding him to do. He didn't want to listen to Moses, and he most certainly didn't want to listen to the God of Moses because he basically said, I don't know this Yahweh, and I'm not going to do what he says. He has his own gods. He thinks himself to be a god. And yet here it says that the Lord hardened his heart. He said, I'm going to harden your heart, and you're not going to do what I ask you to do. And we get uncomfortable with that. We don't think it's fair. It doesn't seem right. Listen to this. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. This is when he called him, okay? All the way back in chapter three, chapter four. And he says, but I will harden his, Pharaoh's heart, so that he will not let the people go. He told him, when you go, I'm calling you and here's your mission. You're gonna go back to Egypt. You're gonna go to Pharaoh and you're gonna tell him, let my people go. And up to that point, he's already not wanting to go, right? He, he said, I, I'm not good with my tongue. I don't speak well. And it's going to get worse. He goes, and when you go and you tell him, I'm going to harden his heart. And he will not let the people go. What kind of commission is that? It's the same commission every prophet of God got. Here's my message. Tell the people to repent and they're never going to listen. You realize that no prophet was ever successful at his job? No prophet ever had anybody repent, and yet they were faithful. This guy's going to have to do the same thing. God says, I'm going to harden his heart. He will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now, again, this is the calling, the commissioning of Moses. And if I'm Moses, I'm going, okay. No, okay, we're done here. Not only do I not speak well, but I must not hear well because this makes no sense. This, is, this has failure written all over it. God is basically saying, you're gonna go, you're gonna tell, I'm gonna harden his heart, he's gonna say no. And then you get the pleasure of telling Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse, I'm gonna kill your firstborn son. How is that gonna turn into any kind of a semblance of success? It's not. And poor Moses goes. I would have stayed in Midian. Shepherding looks really, really good at this point. Burning bush or not, I ain't going. But he goes, and he does it. And God keeps his word. See, I wrote this in the devotionary, if you read it, for this week. This time, it was God who hardened Pharaoh's heart. Anywhere along the way, God could have miraculously moved in Pharaoh's life and softened the hardened condition of his heart but he continued to allow the king to display the natural evidence of his sinful disposition. Rather than intervene, God allowed Pharaoh's inherent wickedness to take its normal course. Now, 
Why I think this is important is that we get all twisted out of shape about this, and he hardened Pharaoh's heart. What, what I believe about this passage, what I believe it is telling you and I is that without the intervention of God, every one of us already has a hardened heart. What do we know about Pharaoh? He's got a hardened heart. We've seen it time and time and time again until we get to the sixth plague, and then God hardens his heart, apparently. And I think it, he is, but it's God refusing to step in and do anything that might remotely change this man's heart. What's going to change Pharaoh's heart if it's going to change at all? Moses? What he's saying? No. God is the only one who can change anybody's heart. God is the only one who can transform a hardened heart into a soft heart. And that's important for us to understand is that what we're seeing in these passages, this is God working behind the scenes and sometimes we don't see it, sometimes we don't understand it, but God is orchestrating every facet of this narrative so that his will might be done. Not Pharaoh's will, not Moses' will, not the people of Israel's will, but God's will. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. This is God speaking to Pharaoh and based, or speaking to Moses in regards to Pharaoh, that I could have killed this guy like that. See, we don't understand that this is a holy God that at any moment could have just gone, you know, Pharaoh, you're a joke. I'm God, you're not. You think you're a God, but I'm going to prove to you you're not a God, and he's just going to snuff him out. He could have, right? God could do that, but he hadn't. He said, I could have caught you out from the earth, but for this purpose, I have raised you up. For this purpose, why does Pharaoh even exist on this planet? To show you my power. Now stop and think about that. Why do you exist on this planet? For the very same reason. So that God might show you his power and show his power through you. Not just to you, but through you. That's why you're here. He's already, if you're in Christ, he's already shown you his power by bringing you to faith in Christ because that's the work of God. He also wants you to show his, his power by working in you through your daily walk, showing you that I can assist you in this thing called the walk of life, the spiritual life. And he wants to show you his power by using you as an instrument to win other people to Christ. See, God wants to show you his power. And he says, Pharaoh, for this purpose, I've raised you up. The whole reason you exist, the reason you have on the crown, the reason you have the royal robes and you're sitting on the throne of Egypt is so that I might show you my power so that my name might be proclaimed, where? All across the earth. Every person on this planet, regardless of who they are, where they live, how rich they are, poor they are, significant they are, or is insignificant they are, exists so that God's name might be declared. Through them, to them, around them. See, at the end of the day, it's all about God's name being proclaimed. It's not about Moses, it's not about Aaron. It isn't about Pharaoh, it's about God. And that's significant. What should we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? This is Paul reacting to this whole idea of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. So centuries later, Paul, writing to the New Testament church, is asking this question because he knows the people to whom he's writing have already asked this question. Should we say 
God's unjust, unjust, unfair? Should we say that? By no means. For he says to Moses, he goes all the way back to Exodus. I love how Paul was a student of the Old Testament. He was a Pharisee. He was trained. He knew the stories. He knew the doctrines of the Old Testament. He says, for he, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. What has this got to do with Pharaoh's hardened heart? God could have snuffed him out at any moment, but he's still alive. Why? Because God wants to show his power through that guy. He wants to show Moses his power through Pharaoh. He wants to show the people of Egypt his power through Pharaoh. Pharaoh's still alive by virtue of what? The mercy of God. He still lives on this planet at that point in time by the mercy of God. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show you my my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Paul is quoting what? Exodus the story of the Exodus. Why? So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. This is one of those passages we get to and we get real squirmy. And we go, God, that just sounds like God chooses some and doesn't choose others. Yeah, that's exactly what it says. And and we get uncomfortable with that because it seems unfair. It seems unjust. It seems not right from our perspective. And yet, what do we know about God and what do we know about man? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one who has never sinned. If you say you have not sinned, you declare God to be a liar. So we know we've all sinned and we know the wages of sin is what? Death, not just physical death, eternal separation from God. And so all of us are under a curse, a condemnation and yet God shows mercy on some. That may make you really uncomfortable, but you're going to need to get comfortable with that uncomfortableness. Because our God, whether we like it or not, understand it or not, is in control, and he is working out a plan that he has, and he's had it in place before the foundation of the world. Long before Jesus Christ came in the form of, of a baby in a manger, he's had this plan. And so we see in this story glimpses of God, glimpses of God's holiness, glimpses of God's grace, God's mercy, that he's showing mercy on some, he's showing no mercy on others. But all for what reason? What's the purpose so that his power might be seen? So people might understand that there truly is a God. See, what I love about Exodus is it it gives me um, kind of a primer on the omnipotence of God, but it's so much more than that. It's not just about power. I believe my God is powerful. Sometimes I don't believe that. But I think in my heart of hearts, I do believe he's powerful. But there's so much more I need to learn about my God than that that he's just powerful. Yes, he created the universe. Yes, he created you. He created me. My God is great. But I also see in the story that he's a God of retribution. He's a God of payback. He's a God who deals with sin. He has to deal with sin because he's a just and righteous God. But it's also in Exodus, a picture of redemption. That's the whole story of Exodus, right? It's redemption, God redeeming people who are enslaved and taking them to freedom. So we gotta see both sides when we read this passage. And what we do is we look at the passage and we almost wanna skip to the good stuff. 
If you heard um, um, Ben Fuqua's sermon this Sunday, he was talking about the will of God. And he and I were talking between services, and I said, man, the, these three little vignettes that we see in that, that story, that passage in Acts chapter 16, you have all this negative stuff happening, but you have some really cool stuff happening, like Lydia coming to faith and the Philippian jailer coming to faith. And there's, there's these cool things happening, and we almost always want to go to the cool thing. Man, look what God did. He, his will was that Lydia might be saved. His will is that the, the Philippian jailer might be saved. His will is always this good stuff. But you skip over that it was his will that Paul and Silas get beat and thrown into prison. It was his will that all these negative things take place so that the good thing might happen. And we go, hmm, I don't, I don't like that. I like that Lydia came to faith, but why did that have to happen? Why did they have to get arrested? Why did they have to get beaten? Why did they have to get thrown in jail? And we don't want to see that as God's will, right? That's why when anything negative happens to you or me, we go, God, where are you? What are you doing? Why'd you let this happen? And God's up in heaven going, I know all about it. I'm right here, and I got a plan. You know, I've, over the last couple of weeks, I've kind of jokingly complained about my cars. And uh, some of you guys have far greater problems than broken down cars. But that was a real issue for me. It was a pain, you know, not to have either car working for two weeks and in the shop and had to rent a car. And so I was kind of put out with God, kind of a silly thing to get put out with God about, but I couldn't see that as his will. So I get one of the cars fixed. My wife's car, the mechanics had it for two weeks. I've spent $700 to get the car fixed and he still doesn't know what's wrong with it. And I'm like, why have I spent $700? Well, cause he's, it's like he's experimenting on my car. So finally I go, do I need to just come get my car? And he goes, yeah, I don't know what's wrong. So I don't know how to go get my car and get it to another mechanic. So I go next door to one of the other pastors and I said, hey, are you busy? Can you take me to go get my wife's car? Follow me to the other mechanic and drop it off. And he goes, yeah, that'd be great. So we go to his car, we get in and he goes, oh, by the way, my AC doesn't work. It was 105. And I'm like, Lord, why did I pick him? What? So we get in his car, we, he rolls the windows down, we're going down the freeway, got to go to Arlington, all the way back to White Settlement, and I'm just like pouring sweat, and I'm not a happy camper. And I look over, his check engine lights on, and the, the car's rattling like crazy, and I said, why don't you get your AC fixed? And he goes, I, I can't afford it. I said, okay, well, is, is it going to cost a lot? He goes, I don't know. I've got, there's so many things wrong with this car right now. He said, I, I can't afford to get it fixed. So we get my wife's car. I, I turn the AC on. It's drivable. I get it to the mechanic. And on the way there, God, God clearly spoke to me. And he says, you're going to pay to get his car fixed. And I said, wait a minute. I've still got one car of my own I got to get fixed. He goes, don't worry about that. You're going to pay to get his car fixed. And I was like, ah. So I drop off my car, get back into his hot car. We're driving back to the church, and I said, tomorrow we're bringing your car up here. He goes, where? The mechanic. And he goes, why? Because it doesn't work. And he goes, I can't afford to get it fixed. And I said, I'm going to pay for it. And he goes, no, 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 no. I said, I'm not asking for your permission. I just need your help to get it up here. And he starts to cry. And I said, 
is that okay? And he goes, why would you do that? I said, why wouldn't I do that? He goes, well, you've already got another car in the shop. And I said, hey, I'm just doing what the Lord's telling me to do. I don't know how I'm going to pay for it, but I'm going to pay for it. I'm going to let God worry about that. And so next day we took his car up and got it fixed. He walks in my office the next day and he, he, he just starts to cry. And he goes, I, I don't even know what to say. He said, can I hug you? And I went, sure. <laughs> so he puts me in a bear hug. And then he starts to share how he had been going through some pretty deep despair of his own calling. Am I in the right career path? And we're going through some financial difficulties and I can't see God in this. And what is God doing? And why is this happening to me? And, and here's what hit me. I had been complaining about all this stuff happening. And yet, why was all that stuff happening? So that I had to go walk next door to his office. He's the only one who was there and ask him to help me go get my car so I could find out what was going on in his life and help him. I got blessed being a blessing. See, I want to complain about God's will and I want to skip to the good stuff. But see, I can't skip to the good stuff. I would never have walked into his office and asked him anything about, how's, hey, how's it going? Because I'm too busy. But God made me go in because my car's broke down. See, guys, that's what I want us to see in this passage is look for God. Look, what is God doing in your life? Where is God in your life? And see, he's a God of retribution, but he's also a God of redemption. He, he is working in ways that we can't see. See, I, I love this from Romans. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up. Here's another picture of that whole hardened heart thing, right? God gave them up in the lust of their heart, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. What's going on here? People sin. People do evil. People walk away from God. And unless God intervenes, they will continue to sin and walk away from God. It's the way we're wired. There is no one who seeks God, no one according to Scripture. There's nobody. That's why I never like the term seeker-sensitive because there's no such thing as a true seeker. People don't naturally seek after God. They seek anything but God. They're looking for a form of God. They just never go to the right place. So he goes on and says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. See, what I got, got, us, got to get us to understand is that unless my God intervenes, all are given up to what? Sin and ultimately death. Unless God intervened in my life, I was headed in the wrong direction. Unless God intervened in your life, you were headed in the wrong direction because man's natural state is what? Darkness of mind. There is no one in this world outside of a relationship with Christ who is truly enlightened. They may be smart. They may be gifted. They may have several degrees after their name, but they are darkened of mind. That's what the scriptures say and they are hard of heart. See, Pharaoh came out of the womb hardened of heart. If you have children, grandchildren, you know that every one of them came out of the womb, what? Darkened of mind and hardened of heart. And it took till about two for it to show up, right? They're just naturally bent that way. It's the, way, it's the fall. It's, it's the fallen nature that we've inherited from our ancestors, Adam and Eve. And only God can do what? Enlighten the mind. 
I got, I got an email. I, I told you guys last week, I love it when you think. I love it when you have questions. I love it when you ask me questions. And, and I said, so write me questions. Well, this last week, I've been <laughs> bombarded with questions. It's been, it's been a blast. Um, and I got one from a guy that, that basically gave me his, his, it was like a three-page email. And it was his story. And it was his story of he's a physicist by training. And he's, he's, his doctrines, like, because of the way he's been trained, his doctrines all over the map, admittedly. He goes, man, I've got doctrine from every base, base denomination on the planet. And I throw that in there with my physicist training and my scientific mind. And he says, I'm not really sure where I am and what I believe. But he wanted to know, is this a safe place to ask questions? And I said, heck yeah. And so he asked me all these questions. But see, now, now he's, got, he's in Christ and he's got a capacity to have his scientific mind truly enlightened. He's smart, but now he wants to know, what does God say? See, God enlightens the mind and God softens the heart, and only God can do that. No number of plagues and no number of Moses showing up and giving a speech was going to change anything about Pharaoh. It had to be God to do it. So here's how I view the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. God did not soften his heart. He could have. He could have changed the heart of Pharaoh, but he chose not to because he was working his will through Pharaoh. I love what Paul writes to the Ephesians. I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you what? The spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him. Where does that come from? What does Paul know? It comes only from God. Only God can give you what? A spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him so that your what? The eyes of your hearts might be enlightened. See, guys, I don't teach the Bible so you'll be Bible scholars. We don't need any more Bible scholars. I read commentaries written by Bible scholars who don't seem to know the Jesus of the Bible. What I want are people who know and love God because that's why the Bible exists. You read the Bible to get to know God. It is the revelation of God so that your hearts might be enlightened. So what do we see in this passage? We see God enlightening the hearts of his people so that they might understand. And I love how he does it. He basically turns off the lights. That, that's what's gonna happen in the 10th plague. And he's gonna reveal that their darkness, the darkness in the land of Egypt is more palpable and more real than they could ever imagine. They're living in darkness, right? They're living in the land of Egypt. They're not where they belong. They haven't been worshiping Yahweh. And so that darkness, whether they realize it or not, is going to become tangible. It's going to become real. It's going to be literally feelable. That's, that's hard for us to get our heads around, right? Feelable darkness. Uh, I remember years ago, I took my family on a road trip, and we went to uh, um, Carlsbad Caverns, you know, and went, went into there, and they always shut out the lights. And that's the closest I've ever come to palpable, touchable darkness. And they tell you, put your hand in front of your face. And what do you see? Darkness. I mean, it's an eerie feeling. That's exactly what we're going to see happen in this passage. God is going to put meat to darkness, sin. And he's going to show his people what it's really like. It says in verse 21, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. Stretch over your hand. I'm going to <laughs> literally turn out the lights. I'm going to darken this land. 
Now, again, we could read this and go, well, it was a solar eclipse. It was a lunar eclipse. It was a dust storm. It was, guys, this either is the sovereign will of, a, of, of an all-powerful supernatural God or it's a myth. I believe it to be God doing something that only God can do. He says, stretch out your hand that there may be darkness. What kind of darkness? A darkness that will be felt. You're going to feel it down into your soul. You're going to know that something's not right. So Moses stretched out his hand, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. Three days of pitch darkness. That means nobody saw anything for three days. It says they didn't see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. All the people of Israel had light, though. Okay, wait a minute. How's that happen? Explain that to me. They're living in Goshen, up in the northern part of Egypt, why was it dark in one place and light in another? Well, let's see. Okay, it was a partial eclipse. And you just kind of like put your hand over part of it, and it, so that land got... Guys, there's no way to explain this. There's, there's no scientific way to explain this. There's light in one part of the land. That'd be like if it was dark in Fort Worth and there, you, it's light here. It's impossible because he's the God of the impossible. And yet that's exactly what happens. Then he says, then Pharaoh called to Moses. <laughs> I love this. Pharaoh's like, whoa, three days of darkness. Who, who noticed Pharaoh? And, and I think he, he knew that, well, they got light. How do they have light? And we, we're in darkness. What's going on here? See, that, that, he knows it's impossible. He knows it's not explainable. He didn't ask his wise men to make darkness, did he? He's been asking them to make snakes. He's been asking them to make you know, crocodiles. He's been asking them to make frogs, duplicate the blood. And he doesn't ask for more darkness, does he? He just wants to know what's going on. He says, okay, go serve your Lord. Get out of here. Take your little ones also. They may go with you. Only let your flocks and herds remain. See, what's amazing is that God is doing something that's gotten this guy's attention, and he does it by bringing darkness. But Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices and burn offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Here is Pharaoh renegotiating the contract, or at least trying to. And he says, okay, you can go. You can take your little ones, but you can't take any of the flocks and herds. And he goes, well, how are we supposed to sacrifice to our God without flocks and herds? No, 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 we're, we're going to go. And you can't stop us. And it says, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Could God have changed Pharaoh's heart and let them go? Yes. Why wouldn't he? Because he still had one last plague. He was not done yet. He has not yet done showing his glory, showing his might. He still has something he's going to do. So Pharaoh said to him, get away from me, take care, never see my face again, for on that day you shall die. So Pharaoh's not a happy camper. He doesn't like the way things are going, and he basically threatens this guy. And Moses says, okay, as you say, I'll never see your face again. See, he threatens the messenger. I love this. And what you got to understand is these are idle threats. He doesn't think they are, right? He's Pharaoh. He could kill him. But they're idle threats from a fool. Why is he a fool? Because he's unenlightened. He doesn't know who God is. He doesn't understand. He's seen the power of God. He's living in literal darkness, but he can't seem to understand how great this God really is. He's a fool. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That, that's the the Bible's definition of a fool. Anyone who says there is no God, what does Pharaoh say? I don't believe in your God. There is no Yahweh. I will not do what he says. I don't know this Yahweh. And he's a fool. And he vows to kill the messenger. Isn't that what we always do? Kill the messenger. 
Well, you can kill the messenger and God will just send another one. They killed the prophets and God just sent another one. You can't kill the one sending the message. But God's not done with Pharaoh. What happens? Chapter 11, the Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. See, he's letting him know we've come to the end of this series of 10 plagues. This is the 10th one. This is the final one. And this time, I'm going to get his attention. He will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they may ask every man of his neighbor, every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. What, a, what an incredibly interesting part of the story, right? He's going to let you go. But before you go, I want you to go to all your Egyptian neighbors and ask them for money. I wouldn't go to any of my neighbors and ask them for money. And I live next to my relatives. I mean, I got my brother-in-law on one side and my mother-in-law lives behind me. I'm not going to go borrow money from them. Can you imagine going and borrowing money from some lost goose that lives across the street from you? That's what they're asking him to do. And it says, and the Lord gave them favor in the sight of Pharaoh and the people. See, again, you got to look for God. What is God doing? God is going to bring one more plague. But before the plague comes, while they're still sympathetic, if there's any sympathy in Egypt after nine plagues, he says, go and ask. And God is revealing that this guy can threaten all he wants, but all that's going to happen is he and his people are, are going to be less affluent than when this all began. They're going to literally give over their treasure and one final plague will be followed. And it's going to be the worst. It's going to be personal and it's going to be painful and it will be permanent. See, this plague is going to last far longer than anybody can imagine. It's, it's going to have impact. It's going to be longer than three days of darkness, guys. This is going to be a, a plague that is going to have long-term ramifications on Pharaoh and the people of Egypt, but not for Israel. See, that's what's cool about the story is that we, we got to understand that there are those who are going to suffer greatly in this plague, and there are those who will not suffer. And who decides which? God. God will show mercy on whom he shows mercy. And that's what we see in this passage. You have to remember what God told to Abraham when he called him. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. This is centuries before they go to Egypt. This is after God has called Abraham, and he tells them when you, there's going to be a point in time, he doesn't have any descendants yet. His wife is still barren, and he goes, you're going to have descendants, and they're going to end up in a place and they're going to be there for 400 years. But guess what? I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. Centuries earlier, God predicted this whole thing. Now it's happening. Why is it happening? Because God ordained it. And God is causing it. And God is making all these things happen. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But listen to this. Not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. This is a fascinating little picture here. And, and I, I, I'm going to guess that most of us have never looked at this passage the way I'm about to kind of lay it out for you, because I know I haven't. I've always looked at this and said, well, these are the people of God. These are the chosen people of God. And these are the evil pagan Egyptians, you know, idol worshipers, uh, 
rejectors of Yahweh. And so it's pretty clear there's the distinction. People of God, not the people of God. But what you got to keep in mind is what do we know about the Israelites? They spent literally four centuries not worshiping Yahweh. They've literally spent four centuries worshiping false gods. They've literally spent four centuries living in sin. So there's not a whole heck of a lot of difference other than skin color and ethnicity between one and the other. Okay, and yet it says the Lord makes a distinction. What did God tell Pharaoh? Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, I will kill your firstborn son. This is what God told Moses to tell Pharaoh when Moses was still back in Midian. This is what you're going to tell him. You either let my firstborn son, his reference to Israel, go, or I'm going to kill your firstborn son. I'm going to kill your literal heir to the throne. That's what I'm going to do. But he refers to Israel as his firstborn son. And you got to keep in mind, what kind of firstborn son has Israel been? Unfaithful, idolatrous, disobedient, rebellious. And yet that's how God refers to them. See, what, what jumps out at me is that in this passage, I see a holy God and a holistic God. What do I mean by that? I get to see all the different character traits of God in this passage. And some of them make me really uncomfortable. There are certain things about God I don't like. Uh, and that sounds heretical, but let's face it, we all get kind of angry at God sometimes. See, sometimes God, when I read the scriptures, seems cruel and sadistic. Really? Why would you do that? Why would a loving God do that? He comes across as harsh. He, he, comes, he comes across as, as unjust. That's what Paul was writing to those Christian believers saying, I know you think he's unjust, but he never is. You think it, I think it, they thought it, and I guarantee you the Israelites thought it. But see, I get to see God in all his glory. I get to see the multifaceted nature of God in this story, and I get a balanced view of God. We need a balanced view of God. If all you accept from God is the good things, you have a, an unbalanced view of God. I'm, I'm, I'm reading through uh, the book of Job right now, and, and Satan is allowed to torment him. And he takes away his children. He takes away his flocks and his herds. And then he inflicts him with boils. And, and his wife tells him, just curse God and die. Get it over with. And he goes, am I going to accept the good things from God and not the bad things from God? Glory be to God. See, guys, we got to have a balanced view. God is multifaceted in his character. He's not one-dimensional. He's a God of judgment and a God of forgiveness. See, I love the forgiveness part. But you got to understand that the forgiveness has no meat to it if you don't understand that you were once under judgment and your sins deserve judgment. He's a God of justice and mercy. I love mercy. I just don't like justice unless it's for you. I love it when God's just to you because you deserve it. I just, I, I just want constant mercy. But see, I got to take both sides of the coin. Uh, he's a God who prosecutes, right? He prosecutes sin. He, he has to deal with sin, but he also shows grace. What is grace? The undeserved merit of God. He just gives it to me. I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. There's condemnation with God. There's also atonement with God. Th these are all over the story, right? Retribution and redemption. You don't get redemption without the potential for retribution, right? The idea of being forgiven of something and you don't think you're guilty, it doesn't have any meaning to it. That's why we need to see God in all his glory 
And all of this points to Jesus Christ. This is the most fascinating thing about the book of Exodus is it all points to Jesus. See, Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers. That's how the New Testament describes him. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the firstborn. He is the literal Israel. He's the perfect Israel. He's the Israel who did what he was supposed to do, what they were supposed to do. He kept the law. He was faithful to the end. He's the picture of what Israel was meant to be. And this whole section of the book of Exodus is all a picture of, a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. And we can't just blow past that. We can't just see it as a story, kind of interesting story. No, it's a story of what God is going to do in the future. Egypt is the world. That's that's what it's meant to represent. We live in this world. This world is our Egypt. It's not a great place. It's not a good place. We get real comfortable like they did, but we don't belong here. And it's a world of darkness. See, that's what we have to understand is that we're surrounded by darkness. And I don't think I need to tell you that, right? You wake up and you check the news and you go, good night. Who turned out the light? Can it get any worse? Well, yeah, it, it can. But we live in darkness. And that darkness represents what? Sin. That's why you shouldn't be surprised when this happens or that happens. And the next ideology that raises its ugly head, you shouldn't be surprised. You're just going, there it is, there's sin. <laughs> it's the natural trajectory of mankind away from God. Everybody living in Egypt is sinful, okay? We know that. Guess what? Everybody living in this world that we live in is sinful, including you. The only difference is your sins are forgiven. You still sin, Right? I, I hope you'll admit that. You, you do sin, and you will sin again, and yet all your sins, past, present, and future, have already been forgiven because of Jesus Christ. See, he's the light that will shine in the darkness. He has shown. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. He's shown in the darkness of our Egypt over 2,000 years ago, and because of that, we've seen the light. We're enlightened. We've been saved. I love this from Matthew. Jesus himself says, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who lived in the land where death cast its shadow, a light has shined. This is Matthew quoting Isaiah the prophet talking about Jesus. This is Jesus. He was the light in the darkness. He's shown into the darkness of this world, our Egypt in which we live. And he's made a significant difference. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations. He is the glory of your people, Israel. Who's that talking about? Jesus. See, Jesus is our hope. He's the Israel that Israel was supposed to be. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. Isn't it interesting that the 10th plague has to do with darkness and the Passover has to do with what? The firstborn that God is going to send at some point his firstborn, the light of the world. Jesus said, if you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. Then he goes on and says, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. What does God want the people of Israel to do? Believe in me, trust me, I am going to show you light. So what happens? Moses calls the elders and he says, go select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin. Touch the lintel of the doorpost with the blood that's in the basin. And none of you shall go out the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians 
And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. We're so familiar with this passage. Here's what you don't typically see because I don't typically see it. What if they don't do what God tells them to do? What happens? Death of the firstborn. See, these people are just as guilty, right? They're just as sinful. The Passover lamb is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, but you got to believe in what? God's plan of salvation. You got to accept what the Passover lamb can do. God wants to graciously redeem the people of Israel, but they have to obey because they're just as sinful, right? They, they got to do what God tells them to do because they're unfaithful and he wants them to be faithful. They're idolatrous and he wants them to believe in the one true God. They're worthy of death and he wants to save them from death and give them life. But if they don't kill the firstborn lamb, their firstborn will die just like the Egyptians. See, this is the judgment of God and the graciousness of God. See, God wants to pass over their sins. But in order for that to happen, they've got to believe and do what God called them to do. So what happens? I, I get in the sandals of the Israelites and I go, would I have done that? Would I have literally listened to Moses and gone, all right, Levi, go out and you know, find the lamb, bring it in. For 14 days, we're going to kind of take care of it. And on the 14th day, we're going to kill it and sprinkle its blood in the doorpost and lintel. How stupid does that sound, right? You want me to do what? But they did it. The inference is they did it. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. Here's what you need to understand. This meant people of every age were dying all over Egypt. See, we hear firstborn and we think fresh out of the womb. That's not the picture. The firstborn is, I have a 41-year-old firstborn son. Had I been there and not done what Moses told me to do, he would have died that night. So you're talking about adults. You're talking about probably 90-year-olds and nine-year-olds and nine-month-olds all over the land of Egypt were dying because what did the Egyptians not do? This. We do know that some Egyptians did do this because there are some Egyptians who were redeemed and were able to walk out. But everybody who wanted to have their firstborn live had to do what God called them to do, but they were dying all over, and it took place in the dark. And that's significant. Darkness brought death. Without the blood, death was inevitable. Without faith, death was unavoidable. If you don't do what God tells you to do, here's what's going to happen. And yet that plan of salvation was available to all. Any Egyptian who had followed this would have been, their firstborn would have been saved. And I believe some did it. Some listened, some, some obeyed, some were crazy enough to do whatever this God of Yahweh, this God of the Israelites told them to do, and they did it. But most of the Egyptians didn't, and they suffered the consequences. See, they feared the darkness, but they didn't fear God. They didn't do what God wanted. But I love this. This is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. There was no judgment for any Israelite family who just did what God told them to do, followed his plan of redemption. But anyone who does not believe him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. See, guys, what I got you to get you to understand, and I need to understand that is that God, 
is not necessarily judging day in and day out this guy and that guy and this woman and that child. They're already judged. They, they've come out of the womb judged. They've already made the decision. The change comes when they believe the plan of redemption that God has made available through what? His son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people love the darkness more than the light for their actions were evil. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast is mine. Consecrate to me. Give over to me your firstborn. I let them live. Now they belong to me. It was their statement of ownership. We owe it all to you. You've, you've redeemed us. And, and what's cool is that the light was shining in Goshen and it remained on in Goshen, but the light up here went on in Goshen because they saw that God had kept his word, spared their firstborn, spared their lives, given them hope, and it's gonna lead to their salvation and their redemption from slavery in Egypt. And I love how he did it through what? Substitutes. Their sins have been paid for by another, a lamb. The Passover lamb died in their place. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, Paul tells us. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John the Baptist described Jesus. And then finally, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, that of a lamb without blemish or spot. See, this whole story is about this. And you and I have been redeemed. You and I have placed our faith in the firstborn. You and I have been set free. And we should rejoice in that. Our God is just. Our God does judge. But he also shows mercy. So here's your questions. Share a moment from this last week where you were able to see the grace and mercy of God in a difficult situation. I shared mine. You share yours. Secondly, God passed over the Israelites, not because they deserved it, but because of his grace and due to their faith. Why do we need to be reminded of this? Why is that still, even on this side of the cross, important for us to think about and to consider? Finally, why is a well-balanced view of God's multidimensional character essential? Don't just focus on the good stuff. Look at the other, because the good stuff only makes sense with the bad stuff, if you could ever call anything with God bad. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the richness of it, that it shows us who you are in all your glory. And that, Father, sometimes we want to concentrate on the things we like and we want to see the things we rejoice in. And we don't understand that, Father, you are a God who does judge. You are a God who brings retribution. You are a God who condemns, but you're also a God who saves. And you have chosen to do it through your son, the spotless lamb of God. Lord, open our eyes, help us to see, open our tongues, help us to speak, help us to hear one another and help us to encourage one another that we might live as men who have hope in a great and good God. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.